It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Greetings again, and welcome back for another episode of the Airhead 247 podcast. This week, it's part two of our conversation with Mark Morrissey. As we noted in the top of our last program, Mark is the driving force behind the Wedgetail Ignition System and is a sponsor of this program. We'll be doing a deep dive into the development and implementation of the Wedgetail this week. It should be noted, it is not our intention for this to be a commercial for the product, though some of you may think it sounds that way. We, in fact, agree to an interview and feature here on the program prior to Wedgetail coming on board as a sponsor. So that said, we encourage everyone considering a new ignition system to do their research, see what's out there on the market, and choose what best suits their needs. Okay, in other news, we got a nice note from Mark in Savannah, Georgia. While listening to our episode with Pokey Parmage a few weeks ago, he was installing a new set of points on his 73 R75-5 in Granada Red with white pinstriping. And while doing so, turns out Pokey mentioned this was one of his favorite models. So a bit of serendipity and well-timed listening there, Mark. Pokey mentions this as you're changing out the points on that exact bike. Pretty neat. Thanks for tuning in and riding. Now, maybe I've mentioned this before, maybe not, but we've got a free digital membership promotion going with the BMW MOA. Consider taking advantage of this as a way to support our efforts here. If you can hear my voice, the offer is good for you, no matter where you are on planet Earth. Information on joining located in the About section of this and all our episodes. William from Boxer 2 Valve, we've given him the week off, but he'll be back with us next time. In the meantime, be sure to visit Boxer 2 Valve should you find yourself in need of any parts for your bike. And remember... William's video repair series on YouTube, a great resource for tutorials on repair and maintenance for any number of jobs on your 247. All right, time to dig into the details on the Wedgetail Ignition System. This week on the Airhead 247 podcast, here's more with Mark Morrissey. All right, so... I think uh, one thing everybody's anxious for us to talk about, uh, when I say us, I mean you, uh, is the Wedgetail Ignition System, uh, which has been out uh, been out a few years now, at least as far as we know here in the States. Uh, let me just say, I have, uh, I have four airheads, uh, three of them have the Wedgetail. And the fourth one, I'm currently working on a 77S. I'll have one in there uh, soon enough. Um, that's my winter project right now. So I'm an adopter and aficionado of your ignition system. 
Uh, let's just talk about, uh, I mean, we could uh, we, sorry, we could do a whole... One second. Yeah, yeah. Can you, can you just say, do you like it? I love it. I love it. Yeah. Um, the thing... The, uh, the, I, didn't, I didn't want to pre-plug, I just wanted to know, because some people put it in and they think, this isn't going to be anything more than a new ignition system, but it really is something more than a new It ignition. is. It is. I mean, my initial impressions... I can't remember where I read about it first. It probably probably uh, was on uh, ADV Rider uh, in the Airhead forum. Um, but yeah, uh, but my initial impressions of it were one: it was uh, I, I enjoy how easy it was to set up. Um, it's really kind of a no frills uh, getting the uh, timing uh, set on it. Uh, I immediately noticed uh, the cold starts uh, were were much easier, and I noticed better better throttle response throughout the range of the motorcycles too. And that's on uh, R80GS, first generation GS, and R90S, and then also I have a 78 uh, RS. So I have them on those three bikes. Uh, the other thing I like. Oh, what's that? I have a 78 RS as well, a gold one. Yeah, that mine's a gold one as well. Indeed, indeed. And they go better than the gold, you know. <laughs> that's my favorite color uh, of all those, uh, of, of all the RS. I mean, it's just so soaked in the 1970s with the uh, gold paint and brown pinstripe. I just love that color. But yeah. uh, uh, the other thing I like about it is that it's a common uh, ignition system on my three bikes. Uh, when I take a trip, I can just pull off the ICU from another bike, throw it in the seat pan. Not that I would need it, but it's a nice piece of insurance, uh, easy to plug in and swap out. So it's compatible across all my machines. Uh, and I've been running, I think the one in the GS, I guess, I don't know, about a year and a half now. Uh, and so, you know, those are my initial impressions of it. I I've really been pleased with it. And so what I want to ask you is, really, what was the impetus for this? And tell me a little bit about the process. I'm sure it was long and involved, and we could do a whole show on this, I'm sure. But as far as the idea... Well, I, the, I go ahead. I, I won't bore you with it, but it, what happened was, um, there's, there's a, 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 a guy in Taiwan who makes a lot of really good stuff, replacement stuff for BMW It's like upgrade things. Um, very, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to get into trouble for naming things or anything, but a lot of guys in the States sell his diode boards. Uh, a lot of paralevers have got his rebuildable drive shafts in them and, and other things. He's made a lot of things and he did make an ignition. Now what? I met him at the John Dillian Woolshed on the Darling Downs. You're talking about you're talking about Amber of the Isle, I presume. Yep, I am. If you said it, then I'm, I can say it. I didn't want to do that yeah. without having permission. But uh, And Jeff Lee's his name. He's a nice bloke. I met him at the John Darien Woolshed. He was riding around Australia on a 1200GS. Um, and uh, he's an engineer. And, and uh, he told me when I met him, it was about 2010, that he was building a prototype ignition system that would replace the weights on, on the BMW because I rode in on my red and white GS and he started talking to me about it. And, uh, he knew we, we had a mutual friend and 
he was trying to explain to me how it worked, and his English was okay, but it wasn't that good enough. He said, I tell you what, I'll send you one. So he sent me one of the original Emerald Isle setups. And it, it, in the time when I put it in my bike and I was out on the downs, I put this thing in and timed it up, and it was a revelation. Seriously, it was so much better than the advanced weights in the CAN system to ride at that time that I, I was immediately taken with it. Now, I, I knew nothing about what was inside the module or anything else. It was just sent to me in a bag with some instructions that were badly written, but anyway. <laughs> and, and then a fellow out here took it up um, and and uh, the agency for them. And, I mean, they made replacement bolts and all kinds of things. Some of them were better than others, but eventually we find that, that what he had and a lot of the stuff, but his diode boards and that were good. Um, he, he did upgrade standard pattern, but upgrade alternators up to 600 watts. And, I mean, they're sold in the States, and I've got them in my bikes, and they're good quality. And as the ignition went on, I started selling them when I opened the shop here. Not, I, I wasn't really chasing a profit line out of them. I was chasing selling people a better riding experience, and it was that. Um, and then he brought out one for a points ignition system, but like all things that seem to come out of out of out of uh, commercial industries, over time, and I see it on all the sites, not just the states, but in, in in Europe and in England, everybody talks about price. And there used to be an old saying in our family: being Irish, we got out here with nothing. Um, but my mother used to always say, "Quality remains long after price is forgotten." And these things were bulletproof, the first few that he set out, like for years. And gradually they started, they upgraded the module, upgraded the module, they did this, they did that, and they, they started to fail. And the last lot, I've got, I've got about 25 of them here, and they just, they would fail randomly out of the box. And there was, you know, um, I, 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 I put my name and my word selling these things, and all the customers that had the early ones are still riding around on them like they're not a faulty thing. But the later ones, they just, I don't know what happened, but they just became unreliable. And in the time, the guy that was distributing them out here, he lost the the ability to distribute that stuff, and um, nothing was done about fixing the problem for a long time, and as far as I'm aware, it hasn't been done since. So to try and overcome the problem I had with 25 or 30 customers who were threatening to burn down my shop, <laughs> um, I, I, uh, I started going around buying up the old series modules that I could find. And now this is this is a condensed version of it. Right? So the yeah. cost of developing a new one of those is, is beyond my means. Like, I'm not a wealthy man. I'm not a poor one, but I don't have millions of dollars to invest and I've never been really interested in chasing business plans that are going to make me an instant millionaire, you know. I'd rather do what I'm doing. I've got everything I need and want in the world. I've got five kids and 11 grandkids. I've got a beautiful wife, great friends. I don't need anything. And so in that pool of friends, I've got John Green and Langdon. Langdon, Langdon is the computer guy. He's got degrees in computer hardware design and structure, and he also is a programmer. His father's been a friend of mine for 40 years. Um, there's a guy named Les Fitzpatrick. Les is an electrical engineer. 
Lee and I have been friends for as long as I can remember, going back to the old Airhead days. Um, there's a couple of other guys that, that were involved in the periphery of things with electronics and bits and pieces. And there's another guy named Neil. I won't mention his last name because he doesn't like to be paid, but Neil has had a lifetime building racing engines and suspensions in Australia for all of the, the luminescent stars that we've had out here since the 70s. Uh, Peter Brock was one of our heroes, and he used to, Neil used to build all his engines and transmissions and suspensions. Uh, Alan Moffat was another one. And, and um, a guy named Johnston, who used to drive Port Sierra Cosworths, uh, and I had a Ford Sierra Cosworth at the time, and I'm, I met Neil much, much later than that. He rides airheads, believe it or not. He's retired now. He's in his 70s. But he's had, he's got machine shops. He's, he's got owns a shop, a business still, where they build 1,000-horsepower, two-litre Mitsubishi engines for rally cars. And he's a meticulous man. And I was talking to him about these guys. We were just chatting one day somewhere, having lunch, I think, and we kind of side decided, well, you know, why don't we have a crack at it? So these guys basically donated all of their time in their various fields uh, for nothing. All they wanted was completed ignitions for their bike collection when it was finished. Now, that is the gospel truth. Wow. They, they let's set up all these little thermometers all over my bike. I look like something out of Star Wars riding around. <laughs> To measure temperatures, and uh, and Langdon began researching all these components and various things that were needed. And I guess if I was going to claim any kind of input to it, I mean, I ride everywhere. I can diagnose what's wrong with bikes. I've got a very sound working knowledge of old cars and and motorbikes and things and the technology that goes with them. And then you've got Neil Lowe, who's got... He's, she was, I just said his name. Um, he's got dinos and stuff that he made available to us and, and, you know, really just a fantastic man. His knowledge is un, unbelievable. And we gradually worked out the programming of it and then we started looking at what was going wrong with them and why... If we were going to bring the ignition into the 22nd century, what... What did it have to have? We just looked at what modern cars do. Like, when was the last time you ever heard a modern car start on a camera when it started? Yeah, ne never, right. So why couldn't we make a bike do that? Why do we have to have archaic things, driving things just because they're old? So one of the upgrades that we are looking at at the moment, we, we use a hall trigger in the in the ignition system. We're currently looking at a particular kind of cam angle sensor, mainly because it's more compact and it would give us the ability to put a twin switch system into a points ignition bike. But it also, and, and again, I'm not going to use the name of the supplier in the States because I don't have a license to do that and I, I don't want to get sued or wrecked. But sure. we use one of the, the more prestigious names in electronics and avionics in the States for about all bar three of our components. And when you look at what they they sell, I, I don't doubt that they're made in China or someplace these days, but they give you a guaranteed life cycle. They give you specs that show how many heat and cool down cycles it's been tested to, what its resilience to you know, back EMF voltage would be, all that. 
You can't buy that on the internet out of AliExpress or anything. You can't. You buy the thing and it works. Nine times out of ten. But you never really know what the spec is. I mean, I've seen headlight bulbs that have got 90,000 lumens. Can you believe that? On the internet, it said so. It must be right because it says it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? So we, we went and went and proved all the components that we need. And then in practice, we found, say, for example, the coil drivers that the later model high-energy high ignition coils that they use in standard BMWs are capable of putting out a back EMF that would blow those coil drivers to bits. And so we, we upspecced everything so that it was that plus at least 50%. Now, that's why they cost what they cost. I mean, Tom, Tom Cutter distributes them for us in the States. Uh, I did thousands and 35 or 40,000 Ks with Lee Fitz and a couple of other guys riding these ignitions to try to make them fail. Looking at what was going wrong with them, we went through one stage there where when it got cold, it used to blow the left-hand carburetor off my bike every five minutes, and that got to be embarrassing. <laughs> Bad, <But> yeah. We, <laughs> did, we did eventually figure out what was causing it, and we didn't we didn't put them into test modules for anybody until I'd finished trying to blow my own bike up, and Les's bike, and Noel's bike, Neil's bike, and John Green's bike. <laughs> We, we kept on refining them and, 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 and looking at what the problem was, not to make the problem go away, but to find out what was causing that problem and then engineer it out of the system. Yeah. There's, that's there a, is a difference in that. that. That's a good point. That's a, that's a good difference. It's one thing to make the problem go away. It's another to understand what it is and then engineer it so it never yeah. happens in the first place. So... I, I, I've read... And one of the things that we found... Yeah. Sorry, just let me, let me finish this one. One of the things that we found in, in, in that process, for example, that we never realised was such a problem on any of the ignitions that, like, say, Emerald Isle or anyone was selling, is like what they call wild voltage. If you get a loose battery terminal, um, you know, the voltage has got to come out somewhere. And it usually used to blow the modules up. And we couldn't explain sometimes why these things were failing. There didn't appear to be any reason for it. They just blew up. But it turned out to be something as simple as a loose battery terminal. And I found out about it by having a battery terminal on my bike come loose one day mm. and stop me on the side of the road, you know. And then immediately once that happened, we had it happen. So now we could figure out what it was. And those, those modules have all got self-resetting thermo switches in there. So if you... If you reverse polarise the battery or you have a terminal come loose, it'll stop the bike all right, but in three minutes it'll restart. It's up to you to find out what's wrong with it. That <laughs> yeah. Wow, interesting. So, yeah, I've read uh, in some of your posts on Adventure Rider, uh, and, you know, kudos to you for jumping in there and answering questions and things. That can that can be a little bit of a snake pit in there from time to time, but... Yeah. Uh, well, that and that's just the way it is. But kudos for you for going in there. But you know, you mentioned, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, really the, if I want to call it beta testing or you know your sort of internal testing on these went on uh, for well over a year, uh, uh, even a little yeah. bit longer before they went to market. We, we produced initially. We hadn't decided on the can idea, uh, and we we did stick. With, and I have endless conversations about cam angle and crank crank mounted sensors. Yep. I won't bore you with that. But but we uh, we, we we decided we were going to go with a match of the original 
mounting hardware, not necessarily the original can, because ours are quite different to the original factory ones. Um, there is a similarity between the Emerald Old One and ours, and that's only because the only way you can make it is to make, if you're going to stick with that architecture, is there's a limit to how far you can deviate from a particular design. Sure. And, and in, in, that, in that sense, when we were deciding about how to do all those things, we were actually welding the weight shut in the bottom of old ignition cans so that they couldn't move. So we were welding up the shafts and giving those cans to people with the test modules in them. Uh, some of them had twin, twin systems, some had single. And we, we were, we were, what we were doing was we were giving them to people um, for a very nominal sum of money if they just wanted to buy them and ride them and didn't want to participate because we knew we'd get them back if they failed anyway. Yeah. And the other people, we, we were giving them to them to ride and ride and ride and ride. And at the end of the process, what I originally agreed to do was to just simply let them keep them. But what we wound up doing was because of the incredible input that came from those 20 or 30 riders, and we chose people who rode their bikes like GSs on dirt, daily commuters, any kind of use that a bike used regularly would be put to, we tried to find examples of those people amongst my customers and my friends and our friends and give them the, the ignitions to try. So that if we were going to get failures, we'd get real-life, real-time failures and we'd, we'd know, you know what, what we needed to improve. So when we finished the testing one by one, I've gone around and replaced all of their ignitions with brand-new wedge-tail systems with new cans and new current model uh, twin twin brains, just to say thank you for them. Because once again, if it hadn't been for all of these enthusiastic Aussie guys, uh, that thing wouldn't make it to market. You couldn't... The developmental process of trying to get something designed like that, like the hours that landed... He, he's got controllers over there. We researching waterproofing, and we found a, a clear water-like substance that they get assembled and uh, populated in, by a machine and assembled in Melbourne, then they come to Brisbane for the final assembly. And this stuff, you can't even tell it's on there. I don't know what it is, but he's had modules running in a beaker of water for six months with no covers on them, just... Oh, really? Dark, by the way, I mean, yeah. <laughs> wow. And he's, he's, he's tireless, and he's, and he's trying to find ways to build a better mousetrap. Interestingly, the ignition's been designed in such a way that a set of points will, will drive it, We've actually got one that we reprogrammed the ignition curve for and did a few things to, and it's driving a 1974 Toyota Corolla around at the moment. Hmm. Um, we can use them in motor guzzies, in any, any, any bike that carries an ignition module like that style of thing, we can, we can convert it to run on that ignition system. Yeah, so um, let, let me jump in and ask you. So uh, these are, uh, most folks who are familiar, some may not be, but these are available for... Uh, basically, slash five, slash six, and then later, uh, which ran points uh, ignitions, and then of course the later, uh, what we call the bean can uh, original ignition system. So available throughout the Airhead two four seven range. We've teamed up with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America to offer a special membership deal for our listeners. Now, before you think, wait a second, Darren, how much is this going to cost? Let's just stop right here and say it's free. 
This is a complimentary one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 podcast listeners. The MOA has a goal of adding 200 new members over the next several months. That's a lot, but I think they can reach that goal with our help. By supporting the MOA with this offer, you're also supporting this program. And let's say this again, it is free of charge. Visit 247.bmwmoa.org and complete the online form using the activation code AIRHEAD247. That's easy to remember. You'll receive your free one-year digital membership, and that will give our program credit for referring you. Or go to the description section of this podcast. We've got a direct link right there. Membership in the MOA offers discounts at hotels, a monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistant programs, plus a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. All this, plus you're supporting our efforts here with the podcast, bringing you unique insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free one-year digital membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the code AIRHEAD247. Thank you very much for your support. Now back to our chat with Mark Morrissey. Now, am I hearing you right? These are also now being developed for other other brands, or is it just uh, BMW specific? No, well, we, when we designed it, bearing in mind that I'm I'm sort of nearing the end of my my working career. I don't mean I'm you know going to sort of close the door tomorrow night, but but we. We designed this with the intent that the young man, particularly who's done most of the work, and to be honest, without without Langdon, and he, Langdon has a particular uh, kind of a disability that it's a minor disability, but it's an aggravating one, and it means sometimes he can't work all the time. You know, he, he gets very tired. But he's a very, very brilliant young man, brilliant, young man, and he works tirelessly on improving his product or making sure that if if not a cheaper, but a better thing comes. He will adopt it. Um, he he he. It just become his passion, and so, which is good. I mean, I love passion. I use miles of it every day. But it 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 means that the thing is is we're not making an old one redundant. You know, anything that's serviceable in that ignition, you can buy from a bearing shop or. A, a, a J car. We have J car electronics out here. I don't know what you have in the states. Yeah, but it's all componentry that is not purpose made. So you've got to buy it from us. We're not interested in selling aftermarket fixes. I mean, we'll carry them and we'll sell them to them. But that's not the reason for our existence. The reason for our existence is to improve the riding quality of the motorcycle. That is my passion, and obviously the passion of other people all around the world, because there are still people riding these old things on round-the-world death-defying trips in places, you know. And so that's what... If there's a legacy that I wanted, I wanted to be able to, first of all, not leave the people I'd sold things to with my enthusiasm in a bad place, and second of all, I wanted to build something that would endure so that even if I'm not around, it's not a hard thing to fix. You know, it's not. It's, it hasn't been. You don't have to cut your, your your wiring system up to fit it. You don't have to put 
things in that were never there. you just got to use the stuff we give you, and it'll last you a lifetime. It's just that's how we build it. Yeah. So, and so obviously, as- I'm not going to retire. I'm not going to give um, Jeff Bezos a run for his money. Or <laughs> <anything like laughs> no. no, but I was asking you, though, so... There are they're available for the Airhead uh, two four seven series. Are these going to be out for uh, other European Japanese motorcycles? For instance, you know a Dyna three ignition, which was popular in the seventies, uh, was available and adaptable for a wide range of brands and models. Uh, is do you see that uh, with the Wedgetail? Yes, absolutely. And, and and we're working on three or four different advanced curves at the moment. Um, Some of the, if you like, secrets to it, um, they're not really secrets, but but there's there's a process of a guy with a really fertile mind who who, who designed the the drivers for the program that runs it. It runs on a proper microprocessor like what's in a mobile phone. It's nowhere near as powerful as the the Apple that you're probably talking to me on now. It, It doesn't need to be that powerful, but it's fully programmable. And the functions that it's required to carry out, it's more than capable of, of being clocked harder than it is now, but we don't need to clock it any harder. It, it, so so it, it, it's operating... Currently, um, Langdon is experimenting with voltages again, like internal voltages, because he's been looking at the specs of modern car ignition control systems that control sparks and, and how and why. And he's like he's got a never-ending quest for, for new information, and he's looking at voltages to see how to maximise the voltage and get the best return with the least amount of structural wear. Like what we want to build is something that you know, we we in Australia are the people that have been associated with this are enormously proud of it. You know, we, we we're not it's not bragging rights stuff. We're sure. just really proud that we we built something for nothing really. Um, and and build something that is as good as it is. And, and really, I, I'm, I'm, I know it sounds like a sales pitch, but the reason I... People contact me and ask me to go on that MOA site, you know, can you please answer these people's questions? So I just spend the day there talking to people. Yeah, yeah. It's not a sales call. It's to try and make sure they get the, what they pay for. You know, that, that's the trick. And sometimes in America, particularly... Some of the some of the things and maintenance things, coil issues. We built them to go across all the ranges of coils. Now, obviously, if it's going to be able to cope with three different types of coil, like two six volt coils, or or one say Dyna brand coil with you know, a, 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 whatever they are, three ohm, one point five ohm, or, or the blue ones, which are the HEI ones with 0.7 in ohm. That's right. It has to be a compromise somewhere, right? So. The, the system will cope with any of those coils and make any of those coils function without overclocking them and burning them out or whatever else. But the optimum for a modern HEI ignition system is to use a modern HEI coil, like a modern twin-pole strong coil that's 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8 ohm uh, internal resistance, uh, primary winding resistance, massive spark, massive reliability, get the most out of it. Now, the truth is the engines don't turn fast enough to really need a coil like that because they, they draw higher higher um, amperage, but they cycle much faster. So you can run them to 12, 15, 16,000. We don't need that. 
but but what we do get out of it is the high energy coming out of the coil. So it draws more current, fires a hotter spark. That's what the optimum is for that. But it will run on anything. Well, now that begs the that begs the question: Are you looking to design a, a proper coil uh, to go along with the ignition uh, system? I did. I did let it drop on the on the site the other day to a fellow. We we are investigating. Um, one of the coils that I've tried on my bike is the factory 1150 coil out of the oil head. Um, it's an impressive coil for the work it puts out, but it's it's a cumbersome fit on these bikes. But I was just looking to see what you know a 2000 and you know something bike had as a coil. In, in a BMW, so I knew that you know it would be it would be in the range of things we wanted to look at. Mm-hmm. We're now talking to some people. Um, some of the coils that are, that are around there, are things called knowledges. There's, there's a whole range of them. We've tried them all. Um, so now we're looking at, at getting one built. Um, not a, not a mini coil as such, but a compact coil, uh, twin pole, uh, high energy output coil that will use the most commonly available plug and wire connections that can be found. Now, that's that's the whole reason for the design plan. This 1150 coils I've got on my bike at the moment are coming off because you need to be Sherlock Holmes with an assistant and a guide dog to find those leads if you happen to damage them. <laughs> I understand what you're saying. Yeah, the co- the commonality is important. I ride my bike everywhere. I refuse to put anything on my bike that can't be bought in a local town somewhere. Yeah. Even if you've got to wait overnight for it to come from the next biggest town. Um, so things that are one of won't fix, they don't go in anything we make. And, and it's all about that. It's about, you know, it's about making something that, that, that is old world. Like, you know, I had a 28 shirt buckboard ute that I used to drive around and, and you could fix it with a file, a hammer and a screwdriver, you know. And, and well, I don't want it to be that simple. I want it to be something that will endure on the bike and be something that can be maintained and managed for a long time. It's uh, it's it's not an ego thing. It's it's what I would want to buy, and I would be prepared to pay more money for it. Like we don't make a, a giant margin on those things. We make we make money out of them, obviously, because sure. we've got to report the cost of cooling and all that. But we're not out for a kill. You know, we we want a steady stream of income going on for a long time, but we're prepared to back it with stuff that's got quality and and quality assurance built into it. And that that's that's something that's, there's a whole flurry of people who wanted to take up distributorships, but some people don't understand why I only have one distributor per se, Tom, Tom Cutter in the States. Um, it's to follow up the warranty because the, the, the train wreck of the warranty that went on with those Emerald Old units when they went out of production in this country, I can't imagine what it must have been like in the States where the, where the volume they were selling would have been 10 or 15 times what we sold here. Yeah. Well, look. It caused uh, a lot of grief, you know. Yeah, Mark. Let me tell you, I had an experience with that. So, I bought. Uh, I think it was the third one I bought, which would have been, I guess, around this time last year. Um, it was for the '78 uh, RS for the gold one. Uh, I bought it, but my third one from Tom came in the mail. Uh, hooked it up just like I had all the uh, the previous two, and nothing. The bike wouldn't fire. And so I did, I did my obligatory checks 
And after that, I emailed Tom. I was, you know, it was a, might have been, it's probably a Saturday, I think. I was probably out in the garage on a Saturday. Emailed Tom. I said, hey, look, you know, I just installed this. I'm not getting any spark. Uh, he replied immediately. He said, here's my phone number. Call me. And I did. Uh, we were on the phone about 10 minutes. He walked me through a real quick uh, testing procedure and process, We, which determined that the IC unit was actually faulty, was not firing. He sent me one. I remember that unit. Yeah. He, oh, okay, really? Yeah. Yeah. There, there was an internal fault in the, in the soldering when they were put together. So, oh, interesting. It, it, actually, it, it tested perfectly. We test right every one of them out here. But it tested perfectly, but it just moved enough inside the housing so that the bare end of the wire touched on the aluminium housing, and that was what the problem was. Interesting. Interesting. Wow. Okay. So but you you ended up seeing that. We only that. had about four or five of them, though, that we did replace them instantly. Well, so what experience did you have again? Well, again, what I wanted to say there is, uh, you you know, you were mentioning mentioning warranty service and customer service. So you know, I email Tom. I hear right back from him. Fifteen minutes later, I'm on the phone. We've got it sorted out. I've got a new unit en route to me on Monday. No questions asked. I plug it in and it's fine. You know, problem solved. And the the point there is, as far as I'm concerned, uh, whether it's a newer product like this, which has been on the market a few years, or a time-tested product, uh, when things happen, you know, failures happen, no, no matter uh, how good the quality control. The point is you have good customer service, knowledgeable customer service, and the problem's rectified uh, in a timely manner, and it's no big deal. And that's what I was really uh, impressed with uh, in that whole scenario. And now come to full circle, you actually, I guess Tom actually sent that unit back to you, and now I know what happened. Well, all of our distributors are required to be our assessors, and we take a financial risk in some respects by giving them authority to do that. Now, uh, that's fairly unique in business, and I've been in a lot of businesses in my life in different ways, but that's why I wanted... I had a lot of conversations with Tom. I had conversations with other people, and some of them, you know, they, they came online in the early piece and tried to blow a hole in our canoe, but that didn't work. <laughs> and... and um, we we were adamant that we were not going to put a central distributor who resold all over the place, and then when um, you know things went wrong, just couldn't do anything because the manufacturer wasn't supporting it. So we took the view that okay, I, I know in in the states there are people who follow people, and it happens here too. Like there are people that I have as customers that wouldn't go anywhere else. Yeah, there are people with customers of another fellow who's been in business for a very long time, and he is a guru. He does know a lot of things. We don't always see eye to eye on things, but that's okay. That's human nature. It, I I understand that personalities polarise, but to me, the fact that Tom, you know, Tom's just had a back, back operation, he's a bit indisposed at the moment. But I've been fielding his emails. They people send them to me. His wife wife puts them through to me. And I will deal with them here on his behalf. But he has stock there that he can replace straight away. 
He collects them up in about once every six or eight weeks, and there's not a lot of them, but he sends them all back to us to evaluate. We pull them apart, test them, find out if anything failed, and we replace his stock straight. Before we get the other ones, we replace his stock immediately. So the service to our customers, to me, is a paramount. It's the most important thing, primarily because I'm selfish. If I can't ride my bike for three weeks, I get very Oh, upset. yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing that pisses anybody off more than that, waiting on a part uh, or not yep. hearing back in a timely manner uh, from somebody yep. uh, about a problem. I, I, I totally get that. And let me let me jump in, in here and ask you, Mark. So you mentioned Tom Cutter, uh, who's the distributor here in the United States. But we should also mention, I guess, I saw that Rick Jones at Motor Rod Electric is selling uh, these yep. units now. Yeah, that, Rick, Rick, that's an unusual occasion. We did that. Uh, I've spoken to Rick a lot. I've bought stuff, a, a lot of stuff off him over the years. Uh, at the moment, I'd have to go and rob a bank to buy something out of the States because of the exchange rate. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, but um, Tom approached me some time ago because he knew he was going to have this issue with his back coming up, and none of us are getting older. Rick's got a very good name in the States, I understand. And we spoke at length uh, several times over Scott. And he, he actually resells on Tom's behalf with our, with our underwriting. So we will underwrite what he does through Tom. I got it. So he, essentially, he, essentially, he's getting them from Tom and, and reselling them. Yeah, we don't, we don't want to let loose stock into the States. Right. Just to be sold by anybody because that's what caused the train wreck when the other stuff went wrong. Yeah. It's nobody's fault. Like, I, I know Jeff. Jeff's a good guy. I don't believe he deliberately went out to short-shift anybody, but their manufacturing processes, you know, in, in, those, in those areas, they're different to us. This is not something we just picked up something and programmed it and started selling it. We built it from the ground up. And, and, and we, we, we went about eliminating things that I knew from fixing them all day needed to be fixed. It needed a better curving. It needed to be better managed. There were things in there that, that could be incorporated that weren't, you know? And, mm-hmm. and so by, and, and, and if Tom came to me tomorrow and said, can I, can, you know, because he, he's not that well, he said, if he came and said, can I appoint this guy, I've known him 30 years. We'd have a conference. If they understood and accepted the philosophy and prepared to sign on that basis, and Tom asked me to, then I would be prepared to do that. But I would not be prepared to allow a second distributor in the States. I follow you. Or in Europe or in England or anywhere else. I follow you. That, because that, it's integrity. It's all about integrity. That, that makes a lot of sense. And you're, you, you mentioned, uh, Rick, that he does have a good reputation uh, here in the States, I mean, he's been a go-to uh, for Airhead Electrical Systems uh, diagnosis, repair, and parts for a number of years and was an early guest on, on the program here. So, uh, you know, I think when you see guys like Tom Cutter as a distributor, uh, you see uh, other retail outlets like Motorrad Electric and Rick Jones selling these, that tells a lot of guys like myself and others, hey, these are being backed by trusted experienced, knowledgeable uh, motorcycle aficionados, and that's always real comforting. I first became a regular customer with Boxer 2 Valve a few years ago when refreshing an R90S. 
William and Edward Plam's video repair series. Well, that was a go-to reference. It made that job and repair session much easier and really an enjoyable process. Boxer 2 valve carries only the highest quality parts, mainly manufactured by OEM suppliers. So the fit is perfect and the repair, well, it's done just one time. Fitment and applications for all parts are clearly listed. To quickly find what you need, you simply enter your year and model of your bike and you'll see only the parts that fit. Shipping, that's always fast with most orders going out that day at 2 p.m. and shipping is available to all parts of the globe. Boxer 2 Valve carries a wide variety of premium special tools and maintenance items, many of those unique to their catalog. William and Edward and the team at Boxer 2 Valve are airhead fans, and as they say, with a passion for simpler times and uncomplicated machines. Check them out for all your parts needs, boxer2valve.com. That's the number two, boxer2valve.com. Now back to our chat with Mark Morrissey. I should ask this too then, we have uh, listeners uh, across the globe, uh, not only in uh, Australia, uh, here in North America, but in other parts uh, of the world. So how are you handling distribution uh, in other countries, say uh, Germany, uh, UK, and, and elsewhere? Well, at the moment, the, the, the EU for me has been a bit of a trick. Um, Motorbins look after us in England now. Um, I bought parts from Motorbins for more than 25 years. Yeah, um, they are typically British in the way they operate, I can say. But the main thing about them was they weren't distributing anybody else's ignition system. Um, so when they well, they do kind of, but when they took on our system, that that became their their flagship. I see. Um, and I tried very hard to get some of the bigger companies in the EU to talk to me. Um, I, I, buy, I, I buy quite a lot of parts. I spend a lot of money every month. But um, one of them was distributing two or three different brands of ignition, so that kind of stopped me there. The other ones um, are uh, people who, who manufacture and produce really high-end performance gear uh, beautiful stuff. Uh, and I couldn't even get them to answer an email. Um, I sent them several emails and a couple of movies, and they never even responded to me. So in the end, to get them distributed into the EU, uh, I gave that distributorship to Motorbins, and they distribute in there. Now, they do a good job. They do a great job with warranties. The thing that is causing me and them some grief is that the, the because they're out of Brexit, they're out of the EU now. People are being penalised in the EU with a tax. Yeah. Having said that, we still sell quite a, a surprising number of stuff into the EU every month, but but it's not ideal. And and Motorbins know that. We know that. I've been working with a guy actually in Holland who does the old roller bearing crank bikes. He's quite well known, and uh, I'm going to have a, a further discussions with him and see if he'd like to pick them up. Good. But All I right. want. I mean, I could just appoint somebody with a wave of a hat, you know, but it's not that. I want the, I want the warranty. I want the customer service. See, Motorbins, Motorbins, if they have a problem, they 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 
put it straight through to me and I will deal with that problem rather than have them, uh, the different guys to, to Tom. Tom's a hands-on, been fixing things forever, man. Yeah. They're parts people who've been selling parts forever and they're very good at it. But that they can fix all the basics, but if it's a technically difficult thing, it becomes an issue for them. So I look after that. We have a rule. We will not sell anything from Australia into any of our distributorships. That's the States, the EU. We've got one in South Africa. He's only starting up now. Um, we're just getting some stock ready for him. Um, and we, we control South Pacific uh, and New Zealand from here. But we, if I was going to, say, give somebody one to road test in the States, and a, a unit, and I've done that a couple of times. I've, I've liaised with Tom. Tom supplies them and we reimburse him because it's, it goes against our agreement for us to supply somebody um, over his head. It's wrong. You shouldn't do that. Yeah. Um, and so I, what I guess I'm trying to say to you, and I'm not being sanctimonious or anything like that, the integrity of the product with the amount of work and effort that all of these great people who work with me uh, put into it, I, I'm not prepared to prostitute it for a dollar. It's just not going to happen. Well, that's good to know. And like I said, I, I was sort of an early adopter. Uh, I'm glad to see you're having success with it. Uh, it's getting wider distribution across uh, Europe. Moto Benz is a great uh, part supplier, uh, like a lot of folks here in the States and elsewhere. I've purchased from them um, from time to time. And so this is all, this is all great news, Mark. And uh, it, it's good to get inside the process here and inside uh, your mind, how, how the unit was developed. And I, I can really hear the passion uh, you've got for what you do uh, with the ignition system. So Wedgetail, I think it's a great product. And I hope if when folks are out there considering options for their bike, it's definitely worth looking into. I want to move on to uh, sort of as we're wrapping this up, I know I, I sent you this uh, questionnaire uh, and topic sheet to review. So I want to hit uh, sort of these big four questions that we ask all our guests. And the first one I want to ask you, Mark, is tell me uh, your four favorite airheads from 1970 to 1995. So I want you to be specific, meaning the color, the year, and the model. What are your four favorite ones? Uh, I've actually, I've got all of them. I'm <laughs> Good for you. So, the first one is a 1970 model R60-5. Uh, it is currently on an S500 style chair. It is black with white pinstripes. Uh, I still have to recover it from when we got flooded, but that's about to start happening shortly, I hope. So I've got a 60-stroke 5. I've got a 75-stroke 6, which we've already spoken about. It's Monza Blue with white pin lines. Uh, it's known in our family as, as uh, the Hummingbird. Uh, I've got a 9th month 1977 built 1978 model gold RS, uh, which I still, to this day, every time... I haven't ridden it for a while because I want to rebuild the gearbox in it and I haven't had time to do that. But I, I, every time I go over 120 kilometres an hour on a good road on that bike and it goes... Eerily silent. It's just another word. <laughs> it is. It's amazing. Let me ask you before you go on to the fourth one on that particular bike. 
How has the paint held up on that? Shit ass. Oh, sorry. Not very <laughs> um, uh, When I got it, I bought it with 70,000 kilometers on it about 20 years ago. And it was the only fared bike I'd ever owned. I saw that. I, I know I'm deviating, but you can edit out what you don't want. That's fine, yeah. I was standing on I was standing on the museum corner in Brisbane, right in the heart of the city, and it's a big major road that comes. This is in about 19, early 1978. And uh, coming down the lanes of traffic, I could see this bright, luminescent golden dot weaving in and out of the traffic. I had no idea what it was. And and I was waiting for my Ducati Dharma to be fixed again around the corner, which was, it, it, it made it out of warranty on time, not mileage. It, honestly, it was the worst thing I've ever owned. Yeah. And I, just, I went to the museum and I was standing on the corner going to go and get something to eat and go back and pick the bike up for its millionth clutch. And anyway, this thing got closer and closer and I realised after a while it was some sort of very unusual motorbike pulled over and went around the corner where I was standing at the lights and it was gold, it had a mono seat on it, a set of Krauser bags and a guy in a suit with a bow tie and a red flower on his lapel. <laughs> and it was gone, you know? Wow. Now, I'd never seen an RS. I had no idea what it was. I knew it was a BMW, so I got on the bike when I got it and I went down to the distributor, Morgan & Wackers at the time, and I walked in and I was gibbering about this bike because it just blew my mind. And, and, and uh, anyway, I said, oh, that'll be uh, Dr. So-and-so's bike. And he wished him that and something else. He's only just had it a week and it's brand new. And they told me, gave me a brochure. And, and that, then they gave me the price. Well, when I bought the Ducati, it was twice the price of a Honda 4. And then I, when I asked the price of the RS, it was twice the price of a Ducati. <laughs> so I could have got four brand new Honda 4s for the, for the price of this bike. So I never did buy it. Years later, the phone rang and a guy rings me up and he says, my name's so-and-so, I'm an ambulance driver over at Inogra. My father passed away and left me his bike and my wife won't let me ride it. And they tell me that you've often said that the only bike you'd ever buy would be a gold BMW RS. And I've got one. It turned out to be that bike. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah. don't don't tell me it was that guy and it was. It was that guy's father. Wow. And I've got all these handwritten documents and everything about the bike, and it was already fading in a really unusual way. The sun out here is very fierce. And it, sure. it, it was it, that rich sort of almost orange gold that they came in. It's not orange, but it's you know it's a quite a striking hard colour. Yeah. It faded slightly, but it had never been painted. And, and so what I did was I went and I got the, the most original piece of paint on the bike that I could find, and I had it spectrum analysed and mixed in two-pack, and then I sat down, and over a period of about three months, I took the whole fairing and everything apart, and I repainted it all to the same colour, um, which is a slightly faded version of the gold, and that was, like I said, 18 or 19 years ago, and it's still the same colour. It hasn't faded or moved again. And it is even more striking on the road now because it's that tiny little bit lighter. It looks like a gold sunbeam, you know. Like it's really yeah. quite striking. Wow! I'll have to no, send. I'll have, I'd like to see a picture of that. We'll have to. Uh, I'll email I'll you. If, if, I've got them. Yeah, email I'll, me and I'll send you the picture. Yeah, and I'll I'll uh, respond in kind. The one I have. The, last, uh, the one sorry. I have is uh, still original paint. 
uh, and really low miles. It just went through the hands of some collectors, really, over the past uh, 40 plus years. So it just turned over 8,000 miles. I've put 1,500 miles on it in a year, which is the most I think that bike's been ridden since it was new. But uh, it still has the original paint and the non-recall uh, gold uh, snowflake wheels. So it's kind of unique in yeah. that aspect. Yeah. I've got one sitting on a hoist here that a guy imported from England. Uh, it's done 1,500 miles, and it's a gold uh, January 78 model RS. 1,500 genuine miles. It's never, never, every single thing on it has never been touched. Wow. Just here for soil. Wow, I'd love to see some pictures of that. Wow, that's great. Okay, so the R uh the Stroke Five, as you all say, we say a slash five, uh, R seventy five Stroke Six, uh, the seventy eight RS, and then I'm guessing your fourth one's going to be your your uh, Paris Dakar. Yeah, my friend, it's called a. Well, they they nicknamed them the Flintstone out here because of all the bedrock gravel on the tank. They called it what? The Flintstone. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it does look like a Flintstones graphic with all the uh, the pebbles and uh, and rocks and stuff. Yeah, so that means yours is a like a ninety three or ninety four or something like that. Ninety three Marrakesh Red and Alpine White. Yep. It's uh, and they're the four bikes. When I started looking around, the only other bike that I would would put in that group, and I really would like to buy one back. I bought it and I. At the time, I don't know what I was thinking, but I didn't keep it on it. I'd buy a really good uh, uh, black or, or red R80 Monoshot. Okay. Fair enough. So that would be uh, from the mid, uh, or early to mid, early to mid 80s, just a standard R80? The R80, the first of the Monoshocks came out in about uh, September 85, and they went through to about 1990. And I just want a plain, simple, unfair. I will buy one. I've I, I nearly bought one recently, and I was too slow opening my mouth uh, because I do think that that particular engine and bike and brake combination is spectacular. You know, like it's it's uh, it's smooth. They've got K brakes on them, basically, and 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 uh, very easy to sort of sort the suspension out and get them handling really well in there. They were just a lovely bike. A lot of people put 1,000cc barrels on them, but it wouldn't be my way of doing it. I, I think they're far too sweet for that. You know? Yeah, I, I would never. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I, I would never. I wouldn't try to make a bike something that it wasn't to start out with. I, if I wanted a 1,000cc bike, I'd go out and buy one. Um, but that's just me. Okay. Believe it or not, there is a model of that that they released in Japan. They call it the R100 Trad. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking yeah, I know exactly what you're talking. I think so. That was a uh, like a ninety or ninety one model. Uh, yep, yep. That was black. I've seen a few of those come up for sale here in the states. It's it, it's a rare bird, uh, for sure. Yeah, I've only ever seen one, and one of my customers has it. And, and, and but you know what? Even that was built like that's got chrome headlight off a mystic on it. It's a parts thing. But I've ridden it, and it just doesn't have the joy of a sweet R80 monoshock. I've got to say, it's lovely, but it's not that. And and uh, they, they, those four bikes that I own, they there's one of each. There's a sixty or seventy five. The only thing I haven't got is, a, is I have never had a nine hundred anything. So I, I, I went for the thousand at the RS, you see. So, um, but 
they were the things as I went through my life and with BMs, and I thought, this is what I want. I want a Parastacker. I want a Marrakesh red and white one. I don't want any other colour. And I want, uh, you know, I want my, keep my little 75, 60 straight five. The best thing about the 60 straight five is that it, you can ride it. it. That's why one used to amaze everyone. I asked him one day in front of a bunch of people, I said, how did you get that thing to go so fast? Because I was sure he must have different barrels on it or something. Yeah. And the big South American smoke. It is easy, Mark. You just pindy throttle and steer. <laughs> Very uh, pragmatic and practical answer there, uh, no doubt. Yeah. All right. Uh, next one. Next one here for you, Mark, is uh, the design or engineering oversight. You'd go back in time and change on the two four seven. What would that be? Uh, you know what? There aren't that many things that I would change on there, to be honest. I mean, uh, from a general point of view, I'd, I'd probably try to do something to improve the flat tap at CAM. Like the, they have a problem with their followers as they're getting older and they eat camshafts from time to time. You know, maybe look at doing something there, maybe putting roller um, roller followers in there or something like that. But really and truly, you know, if you think about it, all the bikes that suffer from things are bikes that don't get used enough. If you ride the bike daily and, and, and you know, you're not afraid to give it a kick in the backside when you want it to go or, you know, ride it hard for... 50 miles because you're in a hurry. Or, they, they seem to, they revel in that, you know. They, what they don't like is being dry started in the cold and using 400 metres for a coffee and then living home. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. So you're riding them regularly, but also maintaining them properly and regularly. I mean, let's not, uh, let's not look overlook that. You know, I've heard, uh, I, as I mentioned, you know, this is a question we ask a lot of, all, all the guests, uh, and the responses have been uh, varied to a large degree. You know, a lot of people will bring up the Circlip that was deleted uh, in the uh, 90s model paralever bikes uh, as a big fault. Yeah, um, some people will com- really complain about, you know, the ATE brakes, which you touched on, and how those could have been better. But, you know, of course, they were what they were at the time, and they went on to be improved. Others have mentioned, you know, why did they never have bikes that had smaller, uh, shorter seat heights uh, for people uh, of lesser stature? Uh, and so hey, everybody's got a little bit uh, different take uh, on some of the things. Um, you know, I spoke with uh, recently with Elspeth Beard, uh, who rode her bike all over uh, the globe, uh, her Slash 6, she just couldn't get over why was why were the points buried right in the bottom front of the engine when they would constantly get uh, drowned in water and, and mud and dust. So uh, we've had a variety of uh, of responses there. Um, of the time, that, that really wasn't it. It's true, too. But, I mean, you know, um, we've kind of cured that now. But Yeah. But yeah, I'd never considered that. But, I mean, I... I, I I'm seeing a lot of bikes now that are people have got money. Uh, they 
had the bikes a long time and we pull them down to do a reseal on them, maybe freshen up wings and stuff like that. And almost inevitably, the slash sixes and early slash sevens, the, the followers seem to stand up well. Uh, the early monoshock bikes, they're disastrous. Um, and and uh, I don't know why. I think they over-hardened them, you know, chipped. Um, but that, that there, that part of the engine is the one thing on that bike that can take the whole bike out and quick. That's true. That's true. And, you know, you bring up a good point. Um, you know, if you're seeing it when people are bringing in for a top end reseal, you know, get the push rods replaced uh, or what have you. Um, just a reminder, and most of our listeners know this, but if you're new to the bikes or new to wrenching, you know, when you do that, it's always a great idea to pull those cam followers and have a look at them uh, if you're if you're doing push rod tubes. Uh, I, that was something I never did. That was something I never did as a general practice initially, uh, when I first started doing it. But now, you know, when I get a bike and go through it, um, that's always one thing I'll check. So. Yeah. And there's, there's a thinking within the motor industry and it, it doesn't just apply to BMWs, twice the cars. I mean, I had big bridge down to mechanical centers, you know, a lot of operators don't, they get a job, they want to do that job and then put it back together again because they don't want to open cans of worms and they don't want to get, you know, this and that and this and that. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm an expert can of worm opener. <laughs> and it's not because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to upsell something. Right. And this business isn't built on on selling. Yeah. I've found if you do the right thing and you do it properly, the business will, will just look after itself. Yeah. If money comes, it's fine. But if we do a resale on an engine... We take the circuit out, we take the gudgeon out, we take the barrel off, we take the piston out of the barrel, and we pull the followers, and we get in there with a good, strong light and have a good look around at what we can see. Yep. And almost inevitably, you'll find that one or two of the followers have got a chip or a couple of chips out of it. And when they come out, they're like diamonds. Like they'll eat the inside of an oil pump housing, they'll... You know, there's a whole range of pain in them. So for me, if 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 I was going to rebuild that engine, with I wouldn't change a thing about it. I love that motor, but I would put maybe roller rockers in there, or or, or I notice Cedar Rock, and I use them in my own bikes. They do a uh, they do a very lightweight solid cam follower. They're expensive, like you've got to sell a couple of kidneys to get them. <laughs> yeah. But they are 26 grams lighter. Um, I put a set in my bike. I replaced the block in 2020 because the previous owner, he, I bought it with 130,000 k's out of the deceased estate, and the previous owner's way of stopping oil leaks was to tighten up the head bolts until they all pulled out of the block. Oh, Lord. And um, so I put a new block and crank in it, and uh, I put a set of the lightweight followers in it. I did nearly 100,000 k's on it, took them out, and it didn't have a mark on them. Wow. Um, so, I mean, it's a new technology. I don't know what it's made out of. It's magnetic, but it weighs nothing. I mean, they're quite, quite beautiful, actually. Um, but that would be my probably pet hate with those bikes is, is that, that that is like a sleeping hand grenade, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good point. And as we said, uh, if you're doing that, don't be afraid to open that can of worms, I guess. You know, maybe at least just crack the lid and look in there. <laughs> that's great i like your i like your line 
I like your line there about being the expert can of worms opener. That's clever. Uh, okay, so Mark, I, I want to know what's that. I'll give you one little hint. I bet you nobody that's listening to this, except for the guys who work in the, in the workshops, know about in the oil pump housing on all airheads, type two, four, six, and seven motors. If you look at about eleven o'clock at the back of the when you take out the impeller and the trochoid gear, right? Uh-huh. Look at about 11 o'clock, there is a tiny hole in the back of the, of, the, of the housing. A tiny little hole has been drilled there. And on virtually every bike that I take the cam cover off, the, uh, sorry, oil pump cover off and take the gears out, that hole is blocked. Now, what it is, when the oil pump pressurises, that's on the pressure side of the trochoid and it pumps straight oil through that little hole and sprays it straight along the top of the camshaft. Right? I'm, I'm nobody, listening. Yes. Nobody ever cleans that hole out. It takes a couple of seconds with a tiny little drill. I just use a hand drill and twist it in my fingers and make sure it's clean. And it, that will improve the life of your cam and followers markedly. Wow. Uh, that is a that is a top tip, uh, as they say. And so yeah, I've got a. I I didn't know that. I've got a '77 uh, S, just a straight S uh, that I'm working on this winter, and I just got down to the uh, rear main seal and oil uh, oil uh, pump cover and all that. So I will make a note to look at that. That's a good one. Thank you for mentioning that. Just look, look from, the, look from the, the drive for the back of the camshaft. Go yep. up to yep. 11 o'clock, about halfway between the outer circumference and the, where the cam comes through. And you'll see this tiny little hole in the back of the, on the pressure side of the pump. Perfect. Perfect. Excellent. E- excellent. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next one here for you, Mark. So I'll ask this two ways. A memorable breakdown uh, on a mo- on an airhead or any motorcycle, I guess, for you. Could have been when you were younger, when things just went completely to hell and, you know, you had to call a tow truck, uh, call a friend, or conversely, a breakdown where you miraculously saved your bike or somebody else's bike when it looked like all the chips were down, but somehow you pulled it out? Uh, my most memorable ever would be between two country towns in far, far western Queensland called Timpine and Quilpy, which is um, the land out there is so poor that the pub in Timpine, the block of land that the pub stands on measures six square miles. Um, because it, the country is just worth nothing. And out there between Team Pine and Quilpie on my GS, one morning after we camped in Team Pine, uh, I hit and killed an emu. Uh, and that that bird is about, it's an ostrich-sized bird. That is a large, uh, yes, a large bird, yes. Windscreen. And... Uh, Stan Campbell, the guy I mentioned at the beginning of this interview, told me one thing when I was learning to ride. He said, whenever you know you're going to have an accident, you know you're going to hit something, and you know it's going to happen, let go of the front brake. Yeah, that's great advice. And I said, why? And he said, because if you manage to stay on, you might be able to steer out. Yeah. And and so I did that when I saw the emus fly over my windshield, and I let go of the front brake, and, and I got it. I, its, ne- its head went round its neck about three times, plucked all its brisket on the front spokes on my front wheel. It took off the 
sump guard, the bra, bent the crash bar back, smashed the spotlight that was on the on the crash bar and went out under the back wheel. And the guy following behind me could see the two rocket ships in the soles of my riding boots. <laughs> and I managed to stay on it and I disappeared through a line of trees on the side of the road into what turned out to be a big clay pan and I managed to stay on the bike, get back on the road and stop. Wow. And that wasn't technically a breakdown, but I did have to go and find all the bits that flew off it and retrieve them and try and put them back on again. So. Wow. That is amazing. Um, I, yeah. You bring up that, that uh, interesting point number two for you here in the past uh, just few minutes there. Uh, interesting tip and poignant is, yes, hands off the front brake. Don't emergency brake. Yeah. You know, for a minute, I thought you were going to say, when you know you're going to hit something, don't swerve and try to avoid it uh, because inevitably you're going to lose control. But that's also... Uh, another great tip is, uh, yeah, don't emergency brake, especially with the with your front brake. I just let it go, and then the bike, because it's got such long travel suspension, it must have bobbed up about six or eight inches. Mm-hmm. And as you know, the, the GS has got that little full barry sort of thing on the front. Right, right. It smacked it right in your head, and that was what saved me. It actually saved me. It turned the bird, sort of angled the bird away from coming into the bike. And instead, it went down the left-hand side of the front wheel, under the sump, and out the right-hand side of the back wheel. Uh, and when when I got back on the road, I went back to the bird, and it was as dead as the day before yesterday. So, you know, I, I absolutely managed to kill it properly. Wow. You know, I was just thinking there's also, you're talking with the uh, Paris Dakar uh, and that extra bit of protection around the fairing. Uh, if I was going to say, if you hit a kangaroo, then you would have had the root, the rhubar, uh, of course, as they call it. So, yeah. uh, you know, yeah, let me let, well. <laughs> let me ask you this. This is an aside here. You know, for us here in the States, uh, particularly uh, in my part of the country here in Arkansas, uh, also in the um, uh Northeastern states, uh, Ohio, Pennsylvania, really everywhere, kind of southeast, uh, we have a problem with deer, uh, especially in the fall. Uh, and I imagine the the scourge uh, of motorcyclists for there, uh, for everybody there. You mentioned the emu, but the the kangaroo uh, is probably akin to that as well. I mean, is that a problem? Do you have to keep? Uh, do you get sketchy just worrying about those things jumping out on the road? Absolutely. For a start, they're a very dense creature, um, and they're very, very muscly, like sinewy, muscly animals. Even the little ones, the wallabies and that, they're solid. Um, And when we travel in the the far west, like when there's plagues of them when it's dry, our roads are quite heavily kind of cambered here to get the water to run off them. Sure. And you wind up with a lot of green pink grass on the sides of the road, and and in dry times, even heavy dews will cause some green feed along there. And of course, they're herbivores; they're also nocturnal, basically. So they come out late in the afternoon and go to bed after the sun comes up. And if you're riding along and there's carcasses all over the road and you can smell dead, decaying flesh, you get a heightened sense of. I've got to get out of here and get off the road before four o'clock. So basically when we travel out in that country, we never get on the road much before 8.30 or 9. And we we usually try to be camped up by four o'clock. 
because they can just appear out of nowhere. I mean, I've got a little spotlight on the left-hand crash bar of my Paris Dakar, and it's it's a it's a cone-shaped, very strong beam, and it's angled out to the left <laughs> as we drive on the left-hand side of the yeah, road. Yeah, yeah. But I've got a light bar on the top. When I turn it on, it actually lights up the left-hand side of the road for about 300 metres down the road. So I can I I've become I've been out here all my life, and I've worked in the country and. You see a pair of ears come up out of the grass, <laughs> yeah. or a, a flash of an eye. And that that little light saved me so many times I couldn't even begin to explain it. But I believe it. You really do have to be aware of them. They are lethal things. And I mean, I hit one a uh, kangaroo two years ago, and I was just lucky I managed to stay on. I went over the top of it. But I mean, I've been. I mean, there's an old saying, and I've used it all my life. You know, never ever ride faster than your guardian angel can fly. And and um, when it comes to riding out here and coming into the evening, I slow. If I've got to be on the road, I slow down to 30 or 40 k's an hour sometimes if there's plenty of reason because, you know, you've got a chance to. But if you're doing 110 and you hit one, you're gonzo. Yeah, yeah, gonzo. Yeah, you know, you and I are of uh, <clears throat> identical mind and proxies there because I do the same thing. I have a few um, spotlights mounted on the crash bar. Uh, of course, you know, uh, there's certain times of the year it's not necessary, but especially for us uh, in the early fall uh, here and when the deer are in the rut, uh, I have I do the same thing you do. I'll angle those spotlights just off to either side of the road and turn them on high, and I'll slow down uh, 10, 10 miles an hour from what I would normally do. Uh, that same process for me. So uh, yeah. I'm glad to know you do that. Okay, Mark, as we wrap things as as we wrap things up here, I know this is gonna seem like a silly question. Uh we ask everybody, and I guess it'll be of some interest uh additionally, because you know, I don't know what you've got available there uh in Australia that's different than we do here in the States or elsewhere. But what is your choice of motorcycle oil for your airhead? Um in, in the engine, I run a product that is an Australian-made product out here. It's called Penrite. Okay. Um, uh, and it's um, it's a very good, high-quality oil. And um, its model is HPR30, but it's actually a 20W60 oil. All right. Now, Australia is a very hot place and dry, and I, I use that extra 10, as they call it, Um I find in my engines the, the extra viscosity on because the W is always for winter. See, we get a 20W, 20 winter rating because we don't get a winter as such. Uh, in, in Queensland, if it gets to 16 down here, everybody's walking around in bearskin hats and wrapped up. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. You know, it's, we don't, we don't, don't and that's centigrade I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, they get hot. So in the engine, I use that. It has also a full complement of zinc. It's got the most zinc of any production oil in it. Which is beneficial in protecting flat paper cans. Yep. Um, for the gearbox oil, I use um, that in in the, in the operator's manual and the factory manuals. They say under a certain temperature, use this oil, which was an eighty weight uh, or, or or seventy weight in some cases, and in this temperature range, use a ninety weight. Uh, in Australia, they specify in the manuals 80W90 um, oils, uh, 
And because the gearboxes in these, for example, they're a constant mesh sliding dog gearbox, and that's probably one of the oldest kinds of gearboxes that you'll find on the planet. Like 1920s model tractors have got sliding mesh, constant, constant <laughs> yeah. mesh gearboxes, sliding dog. So, and they're heavy steel gears. So in Australia, where I am, I use a 90-weight oil, uh, usually Castrol, uh, or if I can get it, Penrite, because Penrite's got one one base oil rating higher than the Castrol, and I use it an LS oil, which is limited strip diff oil in the 90, and I use that in, in the gearbox and the final drives. The reason being that the additives in the LS, I had a friend who was the national sales manager for BP Castrol Oils Commercial for years, and he told me about this many years ago. And he said that the additives that they put in the LS component of the of that oil uh, uh, help it sort of slip and not stick. You know, like a limited slip, you will crack the clutches and you hear them going clack, clack, mm-hmm. clack, and go around the corner. Well, LS oil is designed to not to, to make it a friction slip, but not slippery. And so I use that oil, which does help, I think, on the very hot days with changes and certainly... Out here, I use only 90-weight oil because it gets so hot here that you can actually hear and start to clatter when you're riding in traffic and stuff, you know. I believe they, it. They do get hot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I believe it. Well, look, Mark. So that's what I, I use those oils, and that's you know, all my customers. I won't put anything in, in my customer's bike that I won't put in my own. Yeah, I, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. Well, I'll tell you what. This has been a real... Uh, informative conversation. I'm glad we got to spend a few hours together uh, and talk. As I mentioned, I've been just really impressed uh, with what you've done with the Wedgetail uh, Ignition. And now that we've got to visit a little bit more, uh, it's really apparent to me the reason that product uh, is works as well as it does and has been successful to date as it has been uh, is because of the passion and, and care uh, that you have for these motorcycles, and it comes through in that product. And I think folks can hear that in our, in our conversation today. So let me just say thanks once again for the time. Uh, well done, my friend, and continued success. Thank you very much for taking the trouble to interview. I'm sorry if I bored you stupid. No, <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. The nature of the beast. <laughs> Well, I think we covered it all in those last two episodes, no? Thanks again to Mark for joining us and to everyone for tuning in. We'll see you next time. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time.